0: Hello and welcome to the Global Human Rights Defense Podcast, Stand Up for Human Rights. Every episode of this series will feature a unique guest who will share their experiences and expertise pertaining to the human rights topic of their choice, so no two episodes will ever be the same. I'm your host, Marina Krivonosova, and I'm excited to be here today with Corinne von Krenner. Corinne von Krenner has spent her life traveling and living around the world since she was knee-high to a cricket. As an AP-trained correspondent and human rights legal advocate, she focuses on bringing new perspectives to tough issues. In 2008, she challenged the Hague convention on kidnapping and introduced new protection protocols for women and children fleeing domestic violence across borders. Corinne is currently writing a book, Collateral Damage, based on her experiences as a journalist and fugitive. She has been recently featured in Voice Magazine, Access to Justice, and nominated for the Athena Award. In 2017, she co-founded Business of Diversity Event as a platform for diversity communications in the business world. Corinne is a freelance journalist, photographer, and currently founder of Project Ask.org, a platform for social change through the medium of art that was inspired by her travels during the 2020 pandemic. Welcome, Corinne. It's great to have you here. And can you maybe tell our audience a little more about the topics we'll be tackling today?
1: Hey, Marina, it is absolutely wonderful to be here, and I love the fact that you brought me here. Um, We're going to be talking about international law, but in a very specific arena. That's the Hague Convention on Kidnapping, which is, again, it's a very specified area when we talk about international law. It does cross into human trafficking because of the things that happen within that arena, and obviously domestic violence is a huge one. So all these are very women, child-centered issues, but there are men involved in it, I'll say that from the very beginning. Less, but there are some. So I'm gonna be delving into that very interesting dark area And my expertise literally comes from being a kidnapping parent and a fugitive from Interpol, FBI, and a few other people. Oh, wow. (laughs) So very direct experience there. I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I started out as a journalist in the Middle East, worked for ANSA, AP, and a few other organizations. I was a war correspondent. I would say my first war was actually in the Philippines during the Marcos era and I worked my way across into the Middle East and summarizing along the way I had a son. And at that time, the country I was in was not part of the European Union. And to really, really age myself here on Zoom, computers were kind of a new thing. The internet was a new thing. So information gathering, connections to the network, all these wonderful things that we have today did not exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it took me 11 years um, to escape, and escape is the word I'm using, and under the Hague Convention at that time, it was the Hague Convention for International Kidnapping, and as a kidnapping parent, which would be me, (laughs) um, we had zero legal defense, zero protections, and absolutely no support. At that time, we were considered high-level felons and considered dangerous criminals. Wow, <laughs> and what I think when most people think of
2: kidnapping, they think, you know, a guy driving up to a playground and grabbing someone's child and running. So that's very clearly not what you're talking about. So can you explain more the kind of kidnapping you're
1: referring to? Well, I'm referring to, a, like I said, it's a specific area that the Hague Convention tried to cover and initially it was designed for protection but actual usage of the convention became something that was almost terrifying to those of us in the uh, opposing side of that convention. It never addressed issues of domestic violence. It never addressed protection per se, even though the overall umbrella implied it. It was very much directed to jurisdictional issues and to the seemingly presumed innocent parent who had the child kidnapped from. So, kidnapping is perceived, like you said, of somebody grabbing a kid and horrible, horrible things happening and disappearing with that kid and we don't even want to go down that dark hole of what we can imagine there. Mm -hmm. But nobody's ever dressed aside um, in a large way of kidnapping for protection. Oh, yeah, yeah. The fact that many women around the world... Are doing something to try to escape a situation. And if you work with domestic violence, they always say eight is the standard number for a woman to try to leave a domestic violence situation. We up that to an even higher and almost impossible number debating on two issues. One, if she has children, it becomes harder to leave, not easier, because it's a financial issue. Mm-hmm. And women will stay in a domestic violence situation that's seemingly horrific from the outside and can be internally, but for the sake of their children, they will sacrifice their literally their lives because there's no other option for their child to be fed, housed, or have a roof over their head. We know the generational damage that does, we have the studies now, but we're still dealing with what's primarily a legal and financial issue. I can very much see where you're coming from
2: with the financial aspect but I'm very much curious Um, I've obviously never been in this sort of situation so everything that I can say will be from you know the internet or just something I've heard from someone but in a situation pertaining to domestic violence wouldn't the first course of action be to go to the police and seek protection and hope that the law can protect you like how is it that the law is protecting the person inflicting
1: the damage Okay, I'm going to bring this back into the international arena. Mm-hmm, of course. Um, the international arena, we have two issues. Um, when we do the law, we're working internationally with politics. It's very much a political issue, especially with international law. Mm-hmm. And one of the primary things that we have is an issue between signing a convention and ratifying a convention. We have many countries out there that will happily sign anything because it looks great. It's a good political push. But usually to access it as a legal tool or a problem, that convention has to be ratified. And that's a whole different thing. So in the instance of the Hague Convention, there's several countries still to this day that have signed on to it. That means absolutely nothing to be honest. Unless they ratify it, it is not a legal tool or use process that can be accessed. Now when we deal with international law, we're also dealing with jurisdiction. And the first thing I say to anybody is always remember, I don't care where you were born, what your passport is, once you put your foot on the ground, you are liable to the laws of the country you're in. That's just bottom line. Mm. In my case, you can appeal and many did. This was like I said, mine was a very educational. I can do Fugitive 101, you know, how to do it (laughs) and how not to do it. Uh Um, Like I said, there was no information available to me. So it was a very long and hard learning curve to say the least. Um, You're in a jurisdiction and that jurisdiction of court has the majority of power over you as long as you are physically in that arena Mm -hmm. So, as tourists, we will go and visit a country uh, with our children and with our family, and we might get a speeding ticket, at which we pay that speeding ticket off, but we're pretty okay. We haven't broken any major laws, and as we all know from a lot of Hollywood movies, the minute you break a law in that country, you're in big trouble. Right. The embassy will not help you. And this is again a rather interesting perception that we have when we're overseas that if we're in trouble, our embassies will help us. Embassies are there as government um, business entities. Again, back to you're liable to the laws of the country that you are in. Your embassy cannot help you, literally. They will bring you in jail a long list of, you know, local lawyers. Mm-hmm. And in and of itself, that is a problem, because if you're trying to fight something at the level I was in that own country, within their own lawyers, you're already at the negative level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You're trying to fight a country against themselves, mm-hmm. to say the least. Um, so, again, signing and ratifying is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing that happens um, in international law is a parent will have custody, full-blown custody, paperwork issues in their own country and something happens and they end up in the other country. So We're talking international kidnapping and international custody right now. Unless there's a mirror order written in the other country, the partner country, and unless that country has a legal process to support that, you Can have all the custody orders you want, and if that child is kidnapped from one country to the other country without a mirror court order written in their courts, you basically don't have a custody order, you're back to law of the land. So, in my particular case, um, I kidnapped, as my son says, you kidnapped me, true, twice, mom, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I keep forgetting about that one. <laughs>
0: um,
1: the issue that I had was to first fight within the country I was in, mm-hmm. that is what took me so long. Literally, yes, I did kidnap my son twice, and that's a complicated story. The first time was to Ireland, and that was a fan- actually a fantastic experience. <laughs> <laughs> and we were recaptured, and it took me another five years to escape again. Oh, wow. And you were separated at the time, you and your son? We were separated when I was returned, yeah. Okay. Um, most under, again, under the Hague convention, old convention, there was a 90% kill rate of women that were returned to countries. Oh, wow. The children were okay, but there was yeah. a 90% kill rate. Wow.
0: Um,
1: so where was I? Okay, so um, at that time... I had to fight within the local court system to get custody of my son. Um, That took me approximately five or six years and was my beginning education in law. Oh, man. In five (laughs) years, you could just become a full-blown lawyer at that point. And it was my primary education into the Hague Convention. Uh Because in that process, the Hague Convention terrified me. It was understand. actually something that was locking me down, and that was being used against me. Mm-hmm. And uh, people say, why did you study the law, and why do you like it? And I'm like, well, I studied to define every loophole I could to survive. And the Hague Convention became not my, um, shall we say, savior or saint, something to look forward to. It became my absolute adversary. Mm -hmm. And I just combed through it like, you know, literally every word was against me. And the reason for that is because, one, I did not have custody. Two, domestic violence was never included in the Hague Convention. And three, I was liable to the laws of the land of the country that I was in. It was a jurisdictional issue. Under the old Hague Convention, for if you escaped or were ki- kidnapped your son, a child, and at that point, you were a legal fugitive. You were an international fugitive, depending on which country you were in. So you, you had the whole system against you. You were a kidnapper. And under that definition, the Hague Convention, would come through the country representatives um, and forcibly take you and the child and return them to the country you had escaped. And this is irregardless of citizenship. So again, there was this terrifying little area where that, even as a citizen of another country, returning to your home country, your home country would forcibly return you to the country you had escaped from. Despite
2: the fact that, you know, it's like a domestic violence issue, there's actual human rights
1: infringements left and right, that's all just completely ignored. Just- At that time, that didn't exist. Okay. These were the changes that have been made since Mm -hmm. based on my case. Okay, I see. Um, So when I was doing this, there were no protections. Wow. There were six basic defenses that were tried to be used, but they were almost impossible to defend and almost impossible to give evidence. Mm-hmm. So again, citizenship, law of the land, jurisdiction are even today huge issues in international law. And many people feel that because being citizens of another country, that they have some sort of a magical protection. I want to say that that ain't. That just, no, (laughs) toss that one out the window. (laughs) And in certain cases of international law, returning to your home country will not protect you either. And in kidnapping, this becomes very important. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Wow. I've I've said wow so many times, (laughs) but I'm honestly just
0: processing
2: (laughs) this because, again, in my mind, like human rights is this big component of law and international law at the very least it should be so i can't imagine a situation where someone's being mistreated like that where a mother and her child the father and his child are trying to flee and the country just doesn't care they're just focusing on you know this is what's on paper it doesn't matter what your rights are just as a human we're focusing on what's on paper nothing else matters
1: we're focusing on jurisdiction Mm -hmm. and therein lies the biggest problem with international law Mm -hmm. Now, what I did with my case is, like I said, I combed through the Hank Convention as my biggest adversary. And I came upon an issue, and I'm also, as you know, a journalist and a writer, so that was possibly helpful, of something called habitual residence. And I pinned my entire hopes and case on those two words. And the reason for that is, at that time, there was no definition for it. In the law, there's a definition for each separate word, hence all these battles that go over legalese. Mm -hmm. Because if you change the context, you change the meaning. Now, habitual residence in and of itself was such a gray area that nobody could define it at that time. Mm -hmm. And it was defined as the place where the child had spent the most time of their life, which again made it a very big negative for people in my situation, parents in my situation. Um, My son ended up in the country from age eight months. We were going on a holiday. (laughs) <laughs> it became a very long holiday. <laughs> um, when I fled the second time um, to the United States, as a citizen of the United States, and my son is also a citizen of the United mm-hmm. States, when we fled there in 2002, or 2001, the place became public in 2002. What I was looking for under habitual residence when I challenged it in the United States federal courts was under the proof, and to this day, mine remains the most um, documented case of kidnapping today. And again, that's because as a journalist, I made sure everything was documented, just quite interesting events, shall we say. <laughs> Car bombs going off on me, all sorts of wonderful things happen. <laughs> wow, okay, so you really
2: endured everything you possibly could going through the situation.
1: Yeah, the first time I went to the police, again, it's mm-hmm. a matter of changing your, mm-hmm. your perspectives. The first time I went to the police after an incident, the police basically clarified very clearly that I had no rights, and that you know they weren't going to do anything. Was this so in the U.S.? Hard. No, this okay. was where I escaped from. Oh, okay, I see. So yeah, that was that was an education in and of itself, mm-hmm. again, of different ways of doing things, different culturalities. But under the habitual resident i had 12 years of documentation behind me when we fled we had two suitcases one that had the boys clothes and some toys in it and another suitcase full of documents Mm Yeah, and I got some of those documents in a little bit of a shady way, but that's Fugitive 101. (laughs) I understood as much. (laughs) Um, So when I challenged habitual residence, I challenged it on the fact that despite the child being in a country for 12 years, I could prove categorically that we had tried several times to leave and were prevented from doing so. Mm-hmm. In other words, I could prove that under the mm-hmm. Hague Convention umbrella of habitual residents, that despite the child being in a particular place for the majority period of his life, it was not by choice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And to me, this is a foundational ish- issue in everything I do, the ability to have a choice. And this is what I challenged under the Hague Convention. We did not have a choice to leave. I could have left, yes, if I had left my child behind. That is what I was offered. You can leave, your child stays here. Um, being a rather mama bear over the fact, I'm like, that ain't happening. <laughs> I'm sorry, that ain't happening. Uh, so to this day, habitual res- residence has been redefined, and that's under a domestic violence clause. So now, under the Hague Convention, you have a point where you can bring forth a new defense of domestic violence. You will, that slows the system down. So previously, as I said, if you were caught as a fugitive, as an international fugitive, your own country would immediately without the right to a court hearing send you back to the originating jurisdictional country Mm -hmm. now we have an event of time so if there is a claim of domestic violence or violence then that slows the entire system down so that that parent has a chance to be heard which did not exist before
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and in that point of time is where you have a chance for the first time again to tell your side of the story. Okay. And that has been a table turner for many, many cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
2: just hearing about how often things like this happen, I can only imagine how relevant this is just to so many people, how many lives this is saving and changing in the positive direction.
1: It is important when I do both as a journalist and law think I tiny words are very important, how we use them, how they are used. Um, and it can come to something ridiculously that small that can overturn an entire system. And when we deal with international laws, we're not only dealing with um, jurisdictional issues, we're dealing with translational issues, we're dealing with cultural issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For example, if we look at the EU now, the EU works, again, on a very similar system, oddly enough, to the United States. In the United States, the legal system is um, county, which is small, state, which is bigger, and theoretically federal, which is the umbrella. In the EU, even currently today, you're dealing with a similar system. So it's, again, state, as in city or county, country and then EU law being your version of federal umbrella law that oversees everybody in the EU. However, (laughs) the issue there is it might be easy to work from county to country if you're challenging something. But once you challenge within a country, it's very, very difficult even in this day and age to get to that overall theoretical protection of the umbrella EU law. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these cases, again, what's happening in human trafficking cases, in domestic violence cases, in kidnapping cases, Mm -hmm. is they're so stuck in the mud of the country law that the EU never hears about them. The only time the EU is going to hear about them is if, in this case, there's a kidnapping, in which case suddenly the EU jumps all over you Mm -hmm. because it's an international case you really so, have to get it to that extreme level for them to even still like, do unfortunately yeah. lucky like, i mean as you know in the eu it's mm-hmm. very takes years for a case to get heard in the european courts yeah it takes almost a generation sometimes for a case to actually go to the european human rights level yeah. to be heard and in that space of time you're losing all these other cases literally losing them Mm-hmm. And if you take it to the next level of extremity, you're losing lives. Yeah. Do you think
0: but there's?
1: Sorry, no. You, I was going to say,
2: do you think there's any chance for improvement in this case? Do you think there's anything that can ever be done to really standardize it to speed up the process? Because you know, in the U.S., you have like the right to quick and speedy trial and everything. But do you think we'll ever have that in like in real time in the
1: EU or anywhere for that matter? I think it's possible. I think it's just a matter of having these hard conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taken me a few years to start talking about it again. as in a personal issue. I've spent many years talking about it as a speaker in international law, but to bring my personal case forward has been difficult for a long time to talk about it. Um, it still causes me to shake a little. <laughs> it was, yeah, there's some funny parts to the story, and there's some rather you know terrifying parts to the story. But I believe in speaking now that if we talk about these things, we can cause a much quicker change than it took me to do in my time. The internet, networking, people like you reaching out and talking about difficult subjects bring this to the forefront of change and social impact. We are in this amazing period of time now when we can talk to each other around the world like we're doing now. We can talk about difficult things that we couldn't talk about a few years ago. A movement of being transparent about yourself, being truthful about these things in a public arena, not having to separate your professional from your personal. This is huge and i see this as a massive change maker for social human rights social impact and all of these things because we can talk about it now
2: yeah i couldn't agree more i absolutely love that you're sharing this story because this this is so important to get out there it's so important to raise awareness and really talk about it because until people start understanding what's happening and start hearing these stories there's going to be no change because again, I'm I'm hearing something like this for the first time and I've studied these topics extensively. I've talked to people in the government, but I've never heard The, the perspective of, of someone like you who's really experienced it firsthand and I'm sure all the listeners here are feeling the same way. So thank you. And everybody should be able to share stories like this and just raise awareness.
1: It's great. Like I said, I still get a case by case um, things that come out of the blue mm-hmm. and it makes me a little sad because um, we set up Seattle Access to Justice many years ago. We set up a system there that has created protections um, under domestic violence. You will now see stickers and things that say, you know, referring directly to kidnapping parents for help. When I did it, there was no such thing. Um, even domestic shelters wouldn't protect us. We had to hide from the domestic shelters. That's how bad it was. Um, so these things are now out there as information uh, support systems and that's awesome and now with like i said with our new international tech world this is even more so People can reach out to each other. They can talk to each other. It isn't somebody trying somewhere lost on their very own trying to figure it out anymore, yeah. so that is huge.
2: No, that's absolutely great, and I'm very happy to be a part of that, and I'm very happy to be living at the point in time where I'm currently living to see that change happen because it's just absolutely wonderful. But obviously, we have a lot of work to do, so one step at a time. And I think we're all doing it. We can do it. It's awesome. Exactly, exactly. And another thing I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned this, um, art is a place to open communications and initiate social change. Could you tell me more what you mean about that? Because I'm super intrigued.
1: Oh, Project Ask. Yes. Okay. I started Project Ask when I decided to travel through the pandemic. And at that time, I was in Portland, Oregon and it was the world suddenly knew about Portland, Oregon due to the protests that were happening every night and across the U.S. So I decided to start driving literally by myself across the U.S. and see what was really happening out there, which is what gave birth to Project Ask. I discovered there, across the U.S. and across the world, it's a difficult time, we're in a pandemic, it's frightening on a lot of levels. We're in an environmental crisis. We have got so much out there to worry about and people don't talk to each other. And I'm a communicator, at least in writing. I like to do that. And it was breaking my heart, literally, to see families falling apart over pandemic issues, over political issues. And it was like the only place I saw people able to talk to each other was around the field of art. So if you're standing in front of a beautiful sculpture or a painting or you're listening to music, suddenly people that wouldn't talk to each other are having the most amazing conversations. And they're not just conversations about that piece of art, they go into everything else. How does it make you feel and how it refers to current events. And suddenly I thought, well, if art can do that, just as I look at it, what if we used it as a tool around the world to communicate on difficult subjects and support the artists who are putting that art forward. And that's where Project Ask came from. What's your powerful question?
2: Okay, that's, that's really nice. I actually never thought about it that way. I mean, I love art, but I, I understand how it's a uniter, but I don't know. I just never looked at it from that perspective. That's very true. Even people who, you know, I disagree with people who I otherwise might not really get along with. I'm sure that if we just found ourselves in an art museum, there's definitely something we could talk about and keep it neutral and keep it positive. That's great.
0: Thank you for joining me today on Stand Up For Human Rights, Corinne. It was a pleasure speaking with you. If anyone listening to this would like to learn more about my guest today, Corinne von Krenner, please don't hesitate to connect with her with the help of the information provided in in this episode's description. And if you're passionate about and interested in human rights, and if you think you have what it takes to be our next guest speaker on Stand Up For Human Rights, please send me an email or reach out to me on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Krivonosova, and I'd like to thank you once more for tuning in to this episode of Stand Up for Human Rights. Until next time.